Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Alex Lawson. I don't have Amber McKinney or Haley Knoth this week. I don't know what I did. They left me. I don't know. Uh, but uh, in their place, I have Law 360 stalwart, uh, <laughs> Supreme Court reporter, co-host of The Term, Jimmy Hoover is on Pro Se as a host. Jimmy, welcome. You know, it's been like a while since I first came on as a guest, like several yeah. years ago at this point, and to see yeah. the full arc of finally being able to co-host with you. Oh, this is great. But thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I like to think of it as a little bit of like a home and home series. Um, what was it? Uh, the, the week before last, I sent... Amber and Haley to you guys, you and Natalie did a wrap up show with them. And now I get you. It's sort of like, yeah. you know, one for one here. At the so. risk of confusing listeners, it's about like who's <laughs> operating which show these days. Like it's all to say it's it's we're enjoying it at least. Yeah, we don't want to muddle up the canon too much. And um, let me just say, I mean, yeah. you're you're saving me from the summer July doldrums in Supreme Court world where, you know, the justices are off teaching far-flung classes and, and, and we got to have something to talk about, which is great <laughs> to be on like a general legal news podcast as opposed to just a SCOTUS one. I like that you say that I'm saving you even though I think it's probably more true to say that I'm like just like making you do more work. Yeah, well, but, there's that too. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, we do have um, a really great show for you today. Um, later on, we will be talking to Delaware court reporter Leslie Pappas, who um, we talked to her about the story that I, the, the legal story that I think everybody's focused on this week, which is Twitter's lawsuit against Elon Musk over his aborted move to acquire the company and the various fallout from that. It's taking place in this like really strange court that Leslie covers incessantly. So we wanted to get her perspective on that. And uh, it was uh, quite an interesting conversation. Yeah, that was a great convo with Leslie. But let's just kind of get right into some of the top stories for this week. Um, we had some really cool reporting on Law 360 uh, this week about some some interesting drama that's happening on New York's top court, the Court of Appeals, not to be confused yeah. with the Supreme Court, which annoyingly is not is the not top court. The, <laughs> is not the highest court, yes. yes. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we will start here in New York. A lot of sort of New York court watchers were basically really surprised to learn about the sudden retirement of Janet DeFiore, who is the chief judge of New York's Court of Appeals, which Jimmy has already indicated, New York's Court of Appeals is the highest court in New York. The state Supreme Court of New York is actually the name of the lower court. But anyway, this is the chief judge of the highest court in New York. Um, and she retired, and that caught a lot of people by surprise. And then this came into focus a little bit when a few hours after that announcement came out, it came to light that she left the bench in the midst of an ethics probe by the state's judicial watchdog. And Law 360's own Frank Runyon, our New York uh, state court ace, he broke the story this week. Um, and I thought it would be good to lay out some of the particulars here 
It's a little involved, um, but uh, it's a huge story that has a lot of people in New York talking, and especially in the legal community. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this exclusive from Frank here, but let's kind of just back up a bit and go over some of the the details here. So what can you tell us about this story, you know, and why she stepped away from the bench? So Diffiori, as I say, is the chief judge of the Court of Appeals, and she announced on Monday that she would retire effective at the end of August. And she had several years before she would be for- she would be forced to retire by the uh, state's uh, mandatory retirement age, which they have for judges here in New York. And that put a lot of court watchers on alert here. It really wasn't expected. As I say, she, this stuff tends to be kind of politically strategic in the sense that you have a certain amount of time before you have to leave. So if you leave before you're required to, people tend to pay attention. So it wasn't really expected. Uh, now, soon after that, news broke that she was stepping down, the picture came into focus a little bit. Um, our, again, our own Frank Runyon uncovered that DeFiore was in the middle of an ethics investigation over her interference in this disciplinary process surrounding a man named Dennis Quirk, who is the head of the court officers union, which opened up this whole other sort of hornet's nest of discussion about why she was leaving. So let's get into some more of the quirks of this uh, very kind of interesting story here. Like, Okay, so she's possibly intervening in a disciplinary process. What, what's that about? Yeah, so it's a little bit weedy, as I said. So let's just try and like be really clear here. The main issue is that DeFiori's intervention in Quirk's disciplinary hearing Quirk had spoken out against DeFiore after the New York Post reported that she was investigating institutional racism in the New York court system. So this New York Post story comes out, and then after that happens, Quirk basically sent a email to the judge threatening to post copies of a newspaper article from like, I don't know, months prior about a purported uh, extramarital affair that DeFiore was having with a police officer after he got wind of this investigation, basically. So, you know, his antics here, him sort of sending this like email to the judge, threatening to like sort of post this news story around the court so this was an what, article that actually ran the the, the extra yes. marital affair. Okay, it had already ran, and he was basically threatening to like post it around the court. So that's what, what like it a was. like a like an NLRB notice or something ba- like that. Yeah, like basically, on the- yeah, like okay. a yeah. It was already <laughs> sort of in the public record. That's why it's like kind of a strange thing because it's a it's a salacious news story that he was basically threatening to like resurface in the court community. So. After he said that to her, DeFiore, the judge, sent a letter to the hearing officer who was like overseeing Quirk's hearing, um, basically urging them to like go very hard on him and say like this is not right and court officers shouldn't behave like this. But then the official that was overseeing Quirk's disciplinary hearing basically sh- forwarded 
DeFiore's letter to the State Commission on Judicial Conduct, basically saying judges should not intervene in court staff's like ethics proceedings. I know this is like a little heady. Are you with me here, Jimmy? I'm with you. It, it, it's, it sounds like maybe that's a bit of a no-no. At least this former judge who's presiding over the, yeah. over the disciplinary hearing is like, she's completely taken off taken off guard by it and forwards it along so thinks of it as kind of an infraction like a big ethics infraction right yeah we're in like a russian nesting doll of yeah, like yeah. judicial oversight where it's like it's like who can make this situation more bad for themselves exactly like with each you have next- a member yeah you have a member of the court staff who has like threatened something to a judge and he then draws a disciplinary proceeding and then the judge <laughs> intervenes in that disciplinary proceeding, which then refers the judge to an ethics oversight committee. So, and I mean, then that's... he pays off the. No, he, he no, 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 Jimmy. Don't <laughs> okay, further confuse I'm, I'm, I'm confusing this. Let's get back on track. So, she forwards this letter over to the ethics commission. So, where do we go from there? Yeah. So, I would definitely recommend everybody read Frank's story here. He has. A great follow-up on just, we've already talked through how this is like a little bit weedy. But the bottom line is that New York judicial ethics experts who talked to Frank said that it's very likely that DiFiore violated New York ethics rules. And those rules generally bar judges from, quote, initiating ex parte communications concerning a pending or impending proceeding or to lend prestige of the judicial office to advance the private interests of the judge. So that has to do both with her intervention into this proceeding and then also the fact that they had apparently, uh, she and this court officer had like had arguments before. There was an apparent sort of perception that they had some kind of beef or whatever. Now, I will say all of this is a little bit muddled because, like I said, the judge retired in the midst of an ethics probe. And it's kind of like, well, then if she's not a judge anymore, then what ethics has she violated? Right. I mean, right. She, if she if she left the bench, the court, I will I, I should say, has insisted that the judge um, resigned not in relation to this investigation. Um, you can take that at face value, I suppose. But all that boils down to the fact that we'll probably never really get a resolution here. But nevertheless, it's a huge development because DeFiore was the head of a... um, No one thinks of the New York State Court as like a conservative firewall or anything. But she was the head of a four-member conservative block on a seven-judge court. And now... There's a lot of focus on the New York governor to replace her, you know, break a 3-3 tie, as it were, um, which would swing the court back into a more liberal wing. But we'll see how it goes. And it's just, uh, it's really something that a lot of New York lawyers uh, have at top of mind this week. Yeah, it's one of those stories that it's entertaining, one, because there's this kind of like internal court drama and judges maybe committing ethical violations, but also like, yeah, this is the, this is the state's top court, yep. and you're saying there's kind of a tenuous balance on here, and it could be affected by this ongoing drama that Frank reported on. 
a nice, refreshing change-up from some of the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court drama that I that I covered. Yeah, I wish Jimmy. there were a little bit more internal emails, if not uh, opinions, <laughs> that were leaked uh, to the press. But Yeah, hey, Jimmy, listen, you don't even know. There are so many other courts. I know you cover one court for us. Are there? You wouldn't I, believe the yeah. stuff that goes on. Right, right, right. Uh, anyway, um, but yes, <laughs> super interesting story in New York, um, but we do have even more news to talk about. In one of those many other courts in California <laughs> federal court, uh, yes. one of the central characters in the Theranos drama, this is Ramesh Sunny, his nickname Sunny Balwani. Yep. He was convicted of criminal fraud and conspiracy for cheating investors and patients. This was last week. He was actually convicted of 12 counts of those charges. So he is set to be sentenced on November 15th. He actually faces even more prison time than Elizabeth Holmes, who was convicted in January of her role in the Theranos scandal. This is obviously the story around the the kind of the the startup promising a, a revolution in blood testing technology that on, yep. all unraveled after it was found out to be based on faulty technology. But it kind of, I don't know, buttons up uh, some of the drama and you know, there's been so many podcasts and books and movies and docuseries about this, but uh, Sonny Balwani in each of those has been a central character as the, you know, the long-term, I think it was 10 years, boyfriend of Elizabeth Holmes and yeah. executive at Theranos. Yeah, and I would definitely encourage everybody to listen to our episode with Dorothy Atkins, who has been covering, she covered first the Holmes uh, trial and has also and also covered the Balwani trial. And I remember when the when the Holmes verdict came down, there was a lot of sort of shift in focus to, you know, I mean, she she basically said that Balwani was actually sort of like the brains of the operation. And in fact, they had like a romantic relationship and all of this. But let's get to like what was act what the legal issues were here. What did prosecutors allege about Balwani and his role in the Theranos? fraud, deception, whatever we want to say. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for bringing up uh, Dorothy because I'm actually going to like rely on a lot of her coverage for this segment because she was in court for this marathon four-month trial. And so yeah. we kind of know, have a lot of insights into what went down in that courtroom. But at a glance, prosecutors basically said Balwani was with Holmes every step of the way in when it came to defrauding these investors and also patients you know, who were relying on these blood tests in order to turn this startup into a $9 billion unicorn. <laughs> you know, uh, yep. this is all on the backs of these bogus claims about the efficacy of this technology, that they're going to revolutionize the medical testing industry with just a few drops of blood rather than like the vials that were relied upon by the existing diagnostics industry. According to the prosecutors, Balwani was a big shot at the company. You know, he was he was someone who hired and fired people. He was in charge of this huge, and this was a big part of the trial, this $140 million deal with Walgreens that made the company so attractive to so many investors. He, according to prosecutors, was a central um, component of actually like putting out the company's fake revenue numbers to all similarly make it attractive to investors. And the jury apparently was convinced. It seemed pretty open and shut from the start just because of like the like flagrant nature of the Theranos fraud i mean we like the, i mean the the idea like once it's stripped away and like how like not real any of this tech is um it, like 
any kind of conviction like wasn't that surprising. I am curious to know though how he defended himself. I mean, I'm because his trial and Holmes' trial were split. I'm sure there was like a lot of back and forth, like blaming the other person. Perhaps I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it was like the mirror version of Holmes's trial. Right. They kind of borrowed Actually, each other's. That person over there is the problem. <laughs> right. Your Honor. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. They were indicted together. The trials were severed because Holmes had accused her, or a Balwani, who is like more than two decades or around two decades her senior, of, you know, uh, physical and sexual abuse. And their kind of defenses kind of undercut the other um, a defendant um, in both these cases. But yeah, I mean, his his defense was, uh, well, first of all, Holmes's defense was that she was an impressionable, you know, Stanford dropout in her yep. late teens when they met and kind of fell under his influence as the kind of more older, experienced Silicon Valley executive. Um, his was just a, yeah, the total opposite of that. He said he was basically just an investor in the company and that it was Holmes who who called the shots but, you know, prosecutors over the course of this four-month trial, at which they spent like around 20 days putting on their case against him, they were able to put on a, a variety of witnesses on the stand that undercut that narrative and and show and really showed his influence, not just over, you know, Theranos' labs, but also the company's messaging to investors. So it's funny, in many ways, you know, it's become like the, the strange, very long relationship between Holmes and Balwani has kind of captured a lot of the public's imagination when it comes to these two yeah. cases. Like, it's not just about the scandal anymore, but like this very kind of weird um, relationship that I guess in Holmes's case, there was like a number of texts between the two that just showed their like really awkward kind of dynamic with one another. <laughs> um, but in yeah. any event, yeah, like I said, it's 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 a it's a pretty s a significant win for prosecutors here. I mean, you're talking about twelve counts of fraud that each carry a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. So this was a total loss for Balwani, although he says that he'll, or his lawyers are kind of opening, keeping the door open to appeals. There were, uh, Dorothy reported on a number of uh, evidentiary rulings that could potentially give him grounds to go on appeal to a court. I did want to just like square one circle here where, like you're saying, I mean, the idea that like both of them held some measure of responsibility for what for this like huge fraud you know he's not just some like hapless investor or anything like that he's a key partner and all of that but why is he facing potentially more prison time after this conviction than Holmes I mean is it is it why is that I guess the, the 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 obvious explanation is he was found guilty on more counts by by the jury in his case. Holmes was actually acquitted of defrauding patients, and the jury yeah. was hung as to some of the other counts in that case. And you got to remember that Holmes's trial was before Balwani's trial. Yeah, and it infor one informs the other. Yep. Yeah, it's almost like a dress rehearsal, right? A little bit for putting on the charges <laughs> yeah. against um, Balwani, which the prosecutors were able to kind of streamline their case tightened down the number of witnesses that they were going to call, um, cut it down from, I think, 35 days, which was the case against Holmes, to a 20-day case against Balwani. And, you know, these were some of the key takeaways that um, Dorothy found in her interviews with a variety of different experts about why that is, just why he is facing so much more. One of the other elements is that, you know, he, he does have this um, unfortunate situation where he is the older person here in a relationship with a much younger 
executive. And so potentially yeah. you could have a jury that's like a little bit less sympathetic, you know, to to a guy who used to work for Microsoft, had his own startups before this. And, you know, they maybe he should have known better is kind of the the thinking that maybe some of the jurors had. That's at least one dynamic that we can't discount from these two trials for yeah. why he's potentially now facing more time. And it's tough. I mean, you could like, we're always sort of like, whenever there's a jury trial, it's always like you, you kind of have to like, put put on certain sort of narratives even though like we don't we don't know exactly what drove them to vote the way they did as opposed to like a bench trial when a judge writes down these are the arguments that convinced me and these are the arguments that I kind of you know discard but yeah i mean that was the stuff that was kind of like floating around when they Well i know there was one so in terms of the evidentiary rulings i know there was one ruling that some lawyers think is pretty significant and that is that um the jury was not to be instructed that um, this missing Theranos database potentially contained evidence that might have been damaging to the prosecution. And so maybe some people think that that's potentially a way for him to go on appeal and, and challenge his conviction. We'll see where that goes. But for now, at least, you know, the two main characters in all of these Theranos docudramas have since been convicted of federal fraud. Elon Musk's months-long dalliance with Twitter has finally spilled into court as the social media platform sued the Tesla billionaire for backing out of his commitment to buy the company for $44 billion. But what happens next is uncertain, with months of litigation likely ahead in Delaware's Court of Chancery. With us to break it all down is Law 360's Delaware court reporter, Leslie Pappas. Welcome to Pro Se, Leslie. Hi, thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you. This is maybe going to become a little bit of a Baroque type of legal fight, which we uh, welcome your expertise on. But I want to first just give us sort of a general sense of how we got here. What do we know about Musk's pursuit of Twitter and how it all kind of fell apart leading to this litigation? Yeah, so the, the complaint that was filed in Chancery Court gives a pretty good timeline. I mean, yeah. um, Musk started buying Twitter shares at the beginning of the year in January. And by about, you know, in March, he'd acquired about 5%. And then he started making overtures to the board saying that he was either going to join the board or he was going to take the company private or maybe he was going to launch a rival. So... Instead, they offered him a position on the board. He backed out of that. And then he said he made this offer. Almost immediately after he made the offer, he started talking about bots. And, yes. and that's pivotal to the lawsuit because even before they signed the agreement um, in April, he'd already started talking about bots. Then he, backs, he backtracks, says that the, the merger's on hold, and then again talks about bots. And finally, then he pulls out of the merger. I mean, that really is kind of pivotal to the lawsuit because he is arguing that he should be able to get out of the merger because Twitter hasn't been forthcoming about how many fake accounts are on its platform. And they assert that he needs to stay in the deal 
precisely because they have responded to all of his requests for information about uh, fake accounts on that platform. And that's what they'll be arguing about in Chancery. So it's a it's a multi-billion dollar case. It's a huge offer. But I think most people can kind of understand the broad strokes. The guy says he's going to buy Twitter. He signs a deal, says he's going to do just that. Then he starts talking about the issues he has with the platform. Then he tries to pull out. So that's all fairly accessible stuff here. But then we're now in Delaware Chancery Court talking about you know merger law. So can you kind of give us the landscape of what some of the legal issues will be in a case like this? Because it's not really my area of expertise whatsoever. Yeah, so I was, I, was talking to, I was talking to my colleague, Jeff Montgomery, who's written extensively on this issue. And the way he encapsulated it was, it's going to come down to material adverse effect and reasonable best efforts. Okay, so I'm going to need you to explain those yeah, two let's, concepts. Yeah, <laughs> who's in right. what corner? Well, but you're going to hear mean, those things. You're going to hear those things. So yeah, it's not, yeah. you know, vocabulary to know. So the okay. material adverse effect is basically the idea that if you've got a merger agreement, but then something material, something big changes, or one of the parties in the merger misrepresents what they are offering to the deal, mm-hmm. then the other party has a legal ability to back out of that deal. So Elon Musk, in all of this discussion about bots and fake accounts, is, is basically trying to, Twitter says it's a pretext for him being able to pull out of the deal. Yeah. Now, the reasonable best efforts is also part of the merger agreement, which basically says that they've made this agreement to do a deal. And then they have to both make reasonable best efforts to meet the promises they've made to each other. They've got to turn over information if that's what they've said. They've got to come up with financing if that's what they've agreed to do. They have to make efforts to actually get the deal done. And Twitter is asserting that you know they've done everything they said that they would do. And it's Musk who is not making the best efforts and who is essentially breaching the contract that they signed. I wanted to talk to you about specifically about the venue here. We have we, we're talking about the Chancery Court in Delaware, and that is a sort of atypical court that I think most of our, as opposed to like what most of our uh, listeners are familiar with. And I just kind of wanted to walk us through like. What exactly happens there? Like, as I understand it, I don't know. Can you be put in like stocks and pillory public lashings for tearing the like tag off your mattress or something? What happens in Chancery Court and why is it significant that this dispute is playing out there? I'm like, I'm kidding around, of course. But I mean, just tell us about what happens there. So Chancery Court is an unusual court because it's a court of equity. Yeah, and yeah. basically what that means is it's a court about things about whether things are fair or not. So there are a lot of cases in court having to do with shareholders arguing about whether a share price has been properly valued, whether a merger was properly valued. Um, you have disputes that have to do with corporate boards fighting amongst themselves uh, or fighting with the CEO. And it has a lot of, it's very involved in all sorts of corporate law. And the reason they are going to go to Chancery Court, one, is that they're required to under the merger agreement. 
there's a forum selection clause that basically gives them no choice. They have to go to chancery. But the reason they're going to the chancery court is because they're incorporated in Delaware, as are 66% of Fortune 500 companies in the country are incorporated in Delaware. So it's kind of a circular thing. The companies incorporate in Delaware because they're so, because the Chancery Court is so good at corporate law, and these lawsuits end up there because of that. They're specialists. They're not generalists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Delaware is barely a state. It's a it's a <laughs> it's a corporate backyard. I mean, if we're being honest, um, no, but. Uh, that that is helpful though to understand in terms of like w- what the court is and what it does. And a lot of people would disagree with you on that. I know I was being glib when I <laughs> say this. It's I, the first I, state. <laughs> yes, that's true. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, good history. I remember there. seeing that on a license. I think that's on their license plates. I'm not sure. I think anyway, that's we're right. getting <laughs> we're we're getting a little far afield. I was being glib. Okay, but here's what we all want to know. It's a very strange legal dispute because Musk said he was going to buy the company and then said he wouldn't. And now he's being sued. And ostensibly, the remedy that they're looking for is for him to buy the company, even though he doesn't want to. Can this court force him to buy something that he says he doesn't want to buy? So this court... In in some ways, this case is actually not very complicated. It's very, very simple. It's a breach of contract case. And so it will all boil down to the contract. And the Chancery Court is very used to drilling down into a contract, even in one word. What does that word mean in this contract? And what will come to play here is a clause in the contract that talks about specific performance. And what that basically means is the court can require a company to follow through on what can require Musk, let's just say, yeah, to right. follow through on the deal. Um, now, whether that will happen or not, you know, it, there are other remedies. The court could, um, you know, there could be the court could order a breakup fee. The court could order damages. I mean, but what Twitter is saying is, look, our contract says here's the agreement. You made an agreement to do this deal, and in the agreement, in the contract, it says that you have to do this deal, and the court could could force that. That's what that yeah. That's the kind of the bizarre element of it is that Twitter is so insistent that Musk, who they kind of like (laughs) disparage throughout their sixty page complaint, (laughs) buy me you (laughs) you lying think yeah yeah no. So what are what are you going to be watching out for, Leslie, as this kind of case moves forward? We're going to be looking to see if they're going to negotiate. Because obviously, you know, you come into court with a position and and then things get settled, right? So, I mean, they're saying, hey, finish this deal, $44 billion, but it they very well may settle for something far less than that. And so we'll look to see if there's, if they're negotiating, probably take, you know, we'll be watching for the stock price to see if yeah, it goes up and down because that could, you know, make mm-hmm. a difference. It also seems like Elon's been a little bit more quiet on the on the Twitter front. Well, that's a I, that's a sliding scale, <laughs> but yes, I think you're right, Jimmy. <laughs> and that's something that also we're kind of interested in. I mean, you know, Chancery Court is uh, Musk is no stranger to Chancery Court. He's been there before, and he's been quite arrogant uh, in some cases in his testimony. And 
it's a different judge than when he was last there. So a, a chancellor. It's the chancellor. Yeah, right. Not a judge. That that was not that was judge. the thing I was trying it's, to say. They are this chancellors. Is like parochial stuff going on in Delaware. I don't know. They are chancellors. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he's litigated there before and now he's back again. I mean, what impact, if any, might that have? I don't know. Well, I think the thing to, to remember is Delaware's Chancery Court, you know, we may say Delaware is a small state. It's a, you know, but Delaware Chancery Court is used to big names, big money, big yep. egos, um, lots of litigation, and they're not really cowed by any of this. So I think that um, it, I don't think the chancellors would, you know, they wouldn't hesitate to hold a party in contempt if that's necessary. So I think it will be interesting to see how how it plays out. Well, we are interested as well. Um, it's obviously a lawsuit with a lot of eyes on it. And that's and because of where it's taking place and the issues involved, that's why we had you on, Leslie, to talk it through with us. Thank you for joining Pro Se so much. Um, I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We like to end the show with something offbeat. And Jimmy, you're the guest host this week, and you've been chosen to bring the offbeat story. And we've got something uh, uh, from the well, both from real life and the silver screen, I suppose, that uh, has spilled into the court again uh, this week. Yeah. So this is the real life person who inspired the film Wolf of Wall Street. You might have seen him on your Instagram feed, giving some kind of inspirational message or monologue or something. But in any event... Maybe George, you did. That says more yeah, about your algorithm, I think my Jimmy. algorithms are I mean, way out there. I don't know. I, I have not been served any Jordan Belfort uh, <laughs> classes did or whatever Did I just out doing. myself as a... Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So what's going on? <laughs> in any event, uh, so yeah. Jordan Belfort is... He's, a, he's facing some more legal problems. Uh, not his first time around. No. So this time, he has been accused of sending unwanted telemarketing messages to people in violation of the Federal Telephone Consumer Protection Act, as well as an analogous Florida statute. That's at least according to a new proposed class action that was filed by a Palm Beach County resident in Florida federal court. So the plaintiff says that Belfort's company, Global Motivation, sent <laughs> unsolicited text messages advertising sales on Belfort's website without the option to opt out. So the plaintiff in this case, he wants $500 in statutory damages for each message sent to him and along with any other class member, that is, along with treble damages if he can prove in court that the company's conduct was done knowingly and willingly. So Alex... If you're like me, you're probably wondering what Mr. Belfort was selling. What was he selling? I mean, so, well, that's the thing. Like, I mean, it the movie Wolf of Wall Street, we're going to fire off some Scorsese takes after this, I think. Um, but I mean, it leaves like the way the movie ends is he's like on the motivational speaking circuit. And it's one of the things that it's like, this is the kind of thing that feels like a crime, even though it's not because people <laughs> willingly people willingly give away their money to listen to this guy talk. And so even though I can't speak to the veracity of these allegations, it's like not so far-fetched that he would at least be accused of impropriety, not that he's done impropriety. But yeah, um, what is he being accused of selling through this 
purported telemarketing scam. Well, he was linking to his website, like the sales, the, the the sale page on his website. So I went ahead and did some, you know, real dogged journalistic research. Yeah, and went to his yeah, website. Tell us. So for for now, at least right now, for the kind of the low price of four thousand dollars. You can sign up for Belfort's Straight Line Sales Certification Program. Mind you, a discount from the original eight thousand. Okay. Uh, so, so a pretty good deal for a quote turnkey solution to becoming a world class closer and top producer in your field. So, if that line isn't straight out of a Scorsese film, I don't know what is. Well, yeah, I mean, so so he's selling classes, right? It's sales. It's like classes to learn how to sell stuff, right? Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know. it's it's a little bit. I, I assume it's a little I'm bit different from the. I'm selling classes to tell you to know how to sell stuff. It's pretty. Do yeah. I need to say something? Like you know. <laughs> yeah. I was actually just watching before this, like the clip where he gives the motivational speech to his salespeople in what is it, Stratton, Oakmont. Yeah. In that case, he says that you know, without a a person to to dial the telephone, it's just a worthless hunk of plastic. But in this case, I think it was actually automated text messages that got sent out to the variety of different uh, potential plaintiffs. So, maybe well, not. you know that the original, the the actual like uh, scandal or whatever took place what in the early nineties or something. So that's just that's just the evolution of technology. There, I, I want it. That's is. I mean, whatever. This is a new proposed class action. We'll see what happens with it. Um. I was curious to know, just because we're, listen, my female co-hosts are gone. If there's two guys talking on a podcast, if it goes on for too long, they have to start talking about Martin Scorsese. So uh, that's like a that's like a rule. So uh, I don't know if you, do you have like strong takes on Wolf of Wall Street or where it ranks in the canon or anything like that? Here's my, well, first of all, I love Wolf of Wall Street, but I, my, my I guess my most recent Scorsese take is that i was really dismayed at the reaction to the irishman which i thought was excellent and like everybody i talked to was like this is the worst movie this is like this is so boring it's so long you know there's no drama in it like i felt the complete opposite so that's my big scorsese take that i'm taking to the podcast today is that the irishman was good it was really good the irishman's very good um i definitely agree with that take and i can definitely see how people would like sort of it I mean it is long it's something of a tough sit but it's just kind of like if you're if you're into it you're like this is like literally one of the most amazing like meditations on mortality and um a life of failure and like letting down the people you love and all of that but if you're not you just think it's like kind of like a plotting sort of doddering yeah. old man like directing around other doddering old men, right. all of that. Like right. I could see it both ways. I am in the former camp. I do agree with you. I think it's an awesome movie. Okay, let's hear yours then. One thing I want to say, I was thinking about this yesterday when we were talking about this at the production meeting. I think Wolf of Wall Street is like my favorite movie of the 2010s. And for a long time, my answer to this was The Social Network, which is, a, which is an amazing movie. But, man, every time I watch The Wolf of Wall Street, and that's like an almost three-hour-long movie, much like The Irishman, I'm never, like, for a three-hour movie, like, I am never like, oh, God, when are we getting to the next thing? I was like, it's like, it does not let up, does not stop. I also think it's like a pretty interesting 
close out to sort of like what I consider the gangster like trilogy of the idea of like Goodfellas is like, you ah. know, street level mobsters. Casino then is sort of like funneling it through a leg- legitimate business. And then Wolf of Wall Street is literally about like we are crooks operating within the financial system itself, right? Yeah. yeah. All of them based on true stories. But do, so do you think there is that? Do you think that the fact that Jordan Belford himself, who, mind you, still owes somewhere around like $98 million <laughs> to, his, <laughs> to his fraud victims, the fact that he was able to parlay like his book and then this Scorsese treatment into like this kind of very sellable persona where now all these like crypto bros like love him, does that kind of take away anything from that kind of biting satire critique of the like criminal underworld and, and like the 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 kind of the the critical nature of the of the film at all maybe a little bit but I, but not really and i'll tell you why if you watch the last scene of wolf of wall street and good lord we will we will end the podcast soon steve i promise i'm sorry uh the <laughs> if you watch the la- if you watch the last scene of wolf of wall street when he's doing the sell me this pen the like sales seminar whole thing when the camera drifts up it's rows of people seated and there's like a light in the back of the room and that i think is very pointedly meant to suggest a movie theater it is us Mm. like digesting the guy's persona the guy's like aura his appeal or whatever so i do think it is like i don't think it really is like that surprising that he would then keep reaping benefits, like, you know, raking in all these things. Like, it is meant to, like, turn a mirror back on us. So, there is that. But anyway. I like that. Yeah. Uh, This has been Scorsese Corner. uh, And (laughs) we'll see what goes on with this Jordan Belfort suit. Thank you so much. Uh, Jimmy, you did the thing. Pro se, how does it feel? It feels great. I definitely feel like... It's some. It's a. It's a Law 360 bucket list item to to come on and 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 co-host. Um, and hopefully your listeners will have a little bit more stability in in the coming months as kind of <laughs> people your regular uh, uh, hosts come back. But it was definitely a pleasure. We do have many people to thank for helping us put the show together, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Leslie Pappas, and our contributing reporters. We have a lot this week. Dorothy Atkins, Frank Runyon, Jeff Montgomery, Tom Zanke, and Gina Kim. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your podcast platform of choice, so that other people can find us. It really it really helps uh, drive people to the show. If you want to read anything more about the things that we have talked about today, just head to our website. That is law360.com slash podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.